Hello, friends. It's Jim Botts, one of the pastors here at Hill Country Bible Church. I want to welcome you in if you're joining us online, or maybe you're joining us live physically at one of our locations, Steiner or Leander here at Lakeline. We are so glad you're with us today because, man, we are starting a brand new series through Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. Now, it's a long sermon, a few chapters. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at it in three major sections. For the next few weeks, we're going to look at kingdom values. And then for a few weeks, we're going to look at kingdom character. And then for a few weeks, we're going to look at kingdom practices. And it all begins today looking at kingdom values. Now, here's a little spoiler alert. God's values are way different from the values of the culture around us. God's values are counterintuitive. In other words, they, they, they transcend human thinking. God's values are also countercultural. They'll go right across the grain of what our culture says is valuable. And God's values are also counter comfort zone. God will be calling us through this Sermon on the Mount to step outside of ourselves and into the kingdom realities that he has for us. And so we're gonna to begin today looking at the inside out values of Jesus. I just wanna say this, whether you're seeking and you're wondering about what knowing God could look like or you've been following Christ for a long time, either way, why not just listen today and open the ears of your heart to let God ping you in a way that he might speak to your life specifically today. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, so grab your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to do something a little bit different today, so if you wouldn't mind, grab your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 5, and stand for the reading of God's Word together today. Matthew chapter 5, and we will begin in verse 1. Now when he, this is Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we get started today, I'm curious, by show of hands, how many of you have ever, you've ever built something before? You ever built anything before? Maybe you go to Ikea, you buy a piece of furniture, you go home and you open up and you got this bunch of pictures in multiple languages and you're supposed to build the thing. Or maybe you bought a bike for one of your kids and you thought you bought a bike, but they actually gave you a box. And then we got home, you had to take the stuff in the box and make it look and function like an actual bike. Or maybe you've ever built like a Lego kit. If you've ever done any building, then you know building things is really hard. Now, we've shared this story with you before, but its point is very timely, and its reminder is, is right on what we need for today. So in 1628, crowds gathered in Sweden's Stockholm Harbor to witness the maiden voyage of the Royal Swedish Navy's newest weapon. It was called 
the Vasa warship. Now, this thing had 64 bronze cannons. It was like the most powerful, most expensive warship in the world at that time. But excitement turned to shock when just one mile out, the Vasa warship tipped over and sank in full view of the onlooking crowds. This was a national tragedy as 53 lives were lost and Sweden's war against Poland was set back significantly. The hopes of an entire nation for the end of the war and and the beginning of peace sunk to the bottom of the harbor on that day. Here's the question. What caused the Vasa warship to sink? Well, in 1961, 330 years later, 333 years later to be exact, the Vasa warship was raised and experts examined it and they found out that the Vasa warship was asymmetrical. It was built off kilter, not by a lot, but just by enough. Archaeologists found four rulers that were used to build this ship. Two of the rulers were calibrated to the Swedish foot of 12 inches. Two of the rulers were calibrated to the Amsterdam foot, which was just short of 12 inches. Not by a lot, but just by enough. In other words, the Vasa warship was built by using a combination of of two incompatible standards of measurement. And so the the whole entire venture was doomed even from the start. Listen, friends, every day, you and I, we are building our lives using some standards by which we would build our lives, some standard measurements or values. And the reality is only the values of God's kingdom are values that will last. And we can build our lives on the values of God's kingdom, or we could build our lives on the values of the culture around us. But listen, we cannot build a life that lasts on an amalgam or a combination of two different incompatible sets of values. Because if we try, what you are building will be doomed, even from the start. So as we turn to the Sermon on the Mount, what we see here is, is, is God's kingdom values. These are values that always last. They're ever true, and they never fail. Bible scholar John Stott put it this way. John Stott said, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it's the least understood and certainly it is the least obeyed, right? Here is a Christian value system, ethical standard, religious devotion, attitude to money, ambition, lifestyle, and a network of relationships all of which are totally at variance with those of the non-Christian world. Now, reality, friends, we live in a world where everybody appreciates Jesus. People appreciate the teaching of Jesus, yet we live in a world that builds itself on a random fusion, a patchwork of incompatible values. And if you listen... You can hear the creaking going on. This culture, this world is taking on water. Things are tipping over. 
And you can tell, you can feel it. This world is sinking fast. And now more than ever, we need to learn God's kingdom values from the Sermon on the Mount. Now more than ever, we need to live God's kingdom values. So as we launch into the Sermon on the Mount, here's our big idea for today. You do not live up to God's values. You live into them. There's a big difference between trying to live up to something and living into something. Now, everybody help me out nice and loud. I want to hear your voice. True or false? The harder something is to do, the easier it is to quit doing it. True or false? It's true. Think about losing weight. Hard or easy? Hard. It's like, man, everybody knows what to do. You know, working on diet, got to get your exercise. You're working on diet, start working out, and then you realize after a little bit of time, this is really hard. And then the working out just isn't working out. So we quit. Think about trying to change a bad habit. Think about trying to, listen, love a difficult person. The harder it is to do, the easier it is to quit when it gets tough. Now, here's the bad news. Though many people do admire this Sermon on the Mount, they find it hard to live up to, so they just give up trying to practice it all together. But many people do admire the Sermon on the Mount. There's so much to admire. The golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do to you. That's awesome. Turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, do not judge, lest you be judged. We all love that one. The Lord's Prayer, so much to admire. But the reality is, there are many who look at the Sermon on the Mount and go, this is too hard to do, so they just don't do it. Now, here's the good news. Jesus gave us the Sermon on the Mount as a compelling vision for the kingdom values that all true followers of Jesus live into. The Sermon on the Mount was meant to be not something you live up to, but something you live into. It's a way of life. It's the operating system for the way you think and feel and value in this world. In other words, we were meant to grow by growing into God's kingdom values in the Sermon on the Mount. And it all begins where we started today with what's known as the Beatitudes. Now, the word Beatitude isn't found in our text, but the word blessed is. You probably saw that. It's translating the old Latin beatus into blessed. That's where we get the idea of Beatitude. In Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12, that word blessed occurs nine times. Eight Beatitudes, twice it occurs in that final Beatitude. This idea of blessed is describing a life that flourishes under God's reign. So as we approach the Beatitudes today, I want to give you three very quick keys that you need to understand. We're going to look at the first four Beatitudes today and then the next four next week. And you need these keys to really understand them. Here's the first one. These are eight character traits that identify the true followers of Jesus. In other words, these Beatitudes, they're not multiple choice. You don't pick them like, oh, I like that. No, I don't really care for that one. But this is not a la carte where you pick the one and you go, ooh, that sounds good. Nah, I'm not into that. We don't get to do that. Let me explain it to you this way. How many of you have ever shopped at Costco before? Costco? Let me ask you, when you go to Costco, can you buy a single can of tuna? One does not buy a single can of tuna at Costco. When you go to Costco and buy a can of tuna, you have to buy eight cans of tuna. They're a package deal. And the Beatitudes are a package deal. You don't pick and choose one here or that. They are seen and understood in, in a package deal. Second key. The Beatitudes work from the inside out. The first one, poor in spirit, that's inside of you. The eighth one, persecution, that's outside of you. They work from the inside out and they're increasing in their intensity. And then the third key is that attached to each one of these Beatitudes is a corresponding kingdom promise. Listen, God wants you to live your everyday life motivated by eternity. 
And in these Beatitudes, there's the promise. For theirs is, for they shall. These are kingdom promises to motivate us to live by eternity. A Bible scholar named Karen Hinke summarized it wonderfully. She said the Beatitudes aren't isolated virtues. They're landmarks along the path of repentance that brings us near to the heart of God. Let me ask you, do you want to know the heart of God? Do you want to experience the heart of God? Then you've come to the right passage, Sermon on the Mount. You've come to the right passageway, the Beatitudes. So as we head into the Beatitudes today, a couple things we're going to learn today. First of all, we're going to learn that God favors those who have nothing but spiritual poverty. We'll see that in the first few verses. God favors those who have nothing but spiritual poverty. Here's a question. If you look out at our culture, the culture around you, who would you conclude our culture says the blessed people are? Because the truth is, if you look out at our culture, our culture labels blessed those who are like successful. Blessed are the successful. Or blessed are the affluent, those who are gathering and keeping more and more resources. Our culture would say, blessed are the beautiful. Blessed are the thin. Blessed are the well-educated. Blessed are the influencers. Blessed are the powerful. Blessed are the comfortable. Or if we were to translate that into the language of a fifth grade playground terms, it would be like this. Blessed are the smart, the pretty, the fast, the popular, the funny, the talented. In fact, if you look into this little device that we've been talking so much about lately, if you look into your phone, you will get an image through social media, news feeds. You will get, an, you'll get all kinds of ideas about who our culture says the blessed people are. And the reality is it's the exact opposite of what Jesus says to us. So Jesus teaches us God's view of who the blessed people really are. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Notice those two words, sat down. Jesus went up on the mountainside, he found a flat spot and he, and he was there. The disciples came up and he sat down. Why did he sit down? Was well, this the typical posture of a rabbi? The rabbi would sit to teach and the hearers would stand to listen. I think that's a killer plan. We should try that some weekend. <laughs> Teacher just sits, everybody else stands. It accomplishes a couple of things. One, nobody falls asleep standing. If you did, that'd be pretty funny to watch, You're like dominoes. Really, the, the, the rabbi sits and the people stand to honor the authority of God's word. And here we see Jesus seated, ready to give the authoritative teaching about the values by which God runs and rules his kingdom. Notice the first value, beatitude number one. We're in Matthew 5, look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or draw your attention to that amazing word, blessed. Blessed. In the original language of the New Testament, it's Koine Greek. That word is makarios. And some translators have translated it in terms of like happy. You might even heard sermons in the past on the Beatitudes that said, how happy are. And then you go through each of the Beatitudes. And I got to be honest with you, modern scholars will say, no. That's a very poor way to translate this word blessed. You cannot reduce the biblical concept of blessed down to the Western American value of happiness. It doesn't fit in there. Happiness is a subjective state. It's a feeling. Jesus is not talking about how people feel. Jesus is making an objective statement of what it looks like to live under God's reign. 
And so if you really want to understand the concept of bless, you have to understand it in the full sweep of the biblical story, what the Bible says, the whole Bible, about who is blessed and who isn't. So if you were to look at every instance of blessed and try to get your arms around it, which we did, here would be a definition that you could use to understand who is blessed. A blessed person is one who walks in God's ways, submits to God's rule, and displays God's character in their life. That's what a blessed person looks like. In other words, the blessed person flourishes in any circumstance in life, whether it's hardship, persecution, suffering, affliction, any circumstance, the blessed person flourishes because God is reigning and ruling over their heart and over their life. So if you ask the question, who's blessed by God? Jesus answers first and foremost, blessed are the poor in spirit. Notice Jesus didn't say blessed are the poor, but the poor in spirit. He's not speaking here about economic poverty. He's talking about spiritual poverty. Though the Bible has a lot to say about God's care and concern for the economically poor, that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is Jesus is using poverty as a metaphor to describe a spiritual condition. In fact, one scholar defined this term poor as, quote, a person who has nothing at all. There are many different words in New Testament Greek to describe poor. And every one of those terms describes various levels of not having something, but there's only one term that describes a level of having absolutely nothing. That's this word used here. In other words, we're talking about spiritual poverty. So what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Look at it this way. If like instantly we were to stand before God as individuals, like right now. The average person would say, God, I, I've done some bad things, but I've also done some good things. And I'm really hoping that my good things will outweigh my bad things in such a way that you'll accept me. Listen, the poor in spirit would never say that. The poor in spirit don't talk like that. The poor in spirit would say, God, I'm bankrupt. I've got nothing in and of myself to commend me to you, whereby you should accept me or forgive me or welcome me. I've got nothing but Jesus. The poor in spirit would say, nothing in my hand to bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's the poor in spirit. So let me ask you, does that describe you? Would you self-identify as poor in spirit? Have you come to the place in your life where you realize in and of yourself you do not have a moral resume sufficient to commend you to God whereby he should accept you? A holy and a perfect God. Now, if you're like, man, I never really arrived to that place. Great, we can start today. We can start right now. I wanna share with you the confession of the poor in spirit. Here's what the poor in spirit confess. Confession number one. I'm not God. Confession number two, I need God. So let's practice. Go ahead and turn to your neighbor and say, I'm not God, I need God. Go ahead, take a moment. Now turn to your other neighbor and say, I'm not God, I need God. Doesn't that feel good to get that off your chest? Like you've always known this, now we can finally say it. 
Now listen, friends, it's not by accident that Jesus begins the whole Sermon on the Mount with this one beatitude. Because if you get this one right, proper, everything else will fall into place. Remember when you learned how to type? They taught you home row keys, A-S-D-F-G-H-J-K-L, semicolon. If you were to move over one word, one letter, no big deal, right? It's just not, no, it's all, the home row key. Spiritual poverty is the place where we begin. Everything else flows from that. Notice the promise, verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, that phrase refers to God who reigns and rules from heaven, reigning and ruling from there over your heart. So the first link between my soul and Christ It's not my ability, it's my inability. It's not my goodness, it's my badness. It's not my merit, but it's my need. And let me just say this, here's a a little news flash. Poverty of spirit is not something that Christ followers ever outgrow. You never outgrow it, you never move on from it. I will say this, the more spiritually mature you become, the more profound your sense of spiritual poverty is that I've got nothing in and of myself. All I've got is Jesus. He's my everything and I need nothing else. That's what spiritual poverty sounds like. Pastor Kent Hughes put it well. He said, the Beatitudes slay us so that we may live. They hold us up against God's standards of the kingdom so that we may see our need and fly to him. Does that describe your experience? There was a point in life where you saw the standards of God's kingdom and then you saw the reflection of your failure to meet that and you saw your need and you flew to him because we're seeing the inside out values of God, of his kingdom, that God favors those who have nothing but spiritual poverty. But the second thing we're going to learn here is we're going to see that God fills those who've been emptied of spiritual complacency. God fills those. Show of hands, all in favor of being filled by all the good things God has for you. Raise your hand, come on. Me too. Now listen, more than you want that, Jesus wants that for you. But in order for that to come, something else has to go. What is that one thing that has to go in order for the fullness of God to come? In a word, it's the word Complacency. You go, wow, that's a weird word. Why would we use a weird word? Because it's the right word. It actually describes what Jesus is getting after here, not only in the Beatitudes, but in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. What's complacency? It's a great question. You always ask such good questions. And so I just, we so happen to have a definition right here from Merriam-Webster. Complacency, self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. Complacency. All throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is getting after our, our weird, subtle way of always slipping into self-satisfaction. I'm good. No, I'm good. So we start off well, spiritual poverty, I'm poor in spirit, I got nothing but Jesus. But sooner or later, we, we, we shift into building our religious resume through Religious activity, and before long, we find ourselves in a place where we start to actually think, because I fill in the blank, God's supposed to bless me. 
Because I volunteer regularly, God's supposed to bless me. Because I read the Bible or pray regularly, God's supposed to bless me. Because I give money or I'm generous in the kingdom, God's supposed to bless me. It's not that God doesn't bless it. He really does. But being obligated because you do something, that's a different program. That's a performance program. That's not the kingdom program. Beginning with the Beatitudes, all through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus traces the proper motivation for obeying God to the heart not to the religious activity. But it's so easy to start here, but end up over here. Let me explain it this way. As a young guy, I got a lot of speeding tickets while driving. Anybody else? Am I alone? Don't leave me up here. Come on, help me out. A lot of tickets, right? So anytime a cop would pull up in my rearview mirror, I'd check speed limit, check how I'm doing, and get that thing under control. Why? Because I don't want to get busted. I don't want to pay any fine. You might say I was motivated to drive the speed limit. Motivated by keeping the law. But listen, once we started having children, I became more conscious of speed limits. Why? Well, because now I have this precious life strapped into a car seat in my car. My motivation now is heart-oriented. Like I'm driving the speed limit because I'm motivated by love, not by laws. And in the same way, Jesus is teaching all throughout the sermon. I know that's what he's getting to, that we obey God out of a heart-love relationship motivation. And so building on that first beatitude, these next couple beatitudes, what Jesus is actually doing is he's emptying us out. He empties this out. Let's continue. Beatitude number two, Matthew chapter five, and look at verse four. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Notice the word mourn there. Verse of a person just burdened by grief. If you've ever been to a funeral, you've heard this verse at a funeral. The question is like grief over what? And the answer is it's grief over their spiritual poverty. You've got to remember the, the Beatitudes are not isolated virtues to be understood in isolation of the rest. They are interconnected and they build on one another. So what Jesus is saying is that these set of traits, they describe working together the person who is experiencing God's kingdom reign in their lives. First is poverty of spirit, but secondly is mourning, grief, a deep sense of grief over our poverty of spirit. Now, by show of hands, how many of you have ever gotten a glimpse of what's in your heart and that glimpse saddened you? Raise your hand. Maybe you're interacting with another person, all of a sudden it just occurred to you, oh my gosh, that was like the most prejudicial thing I could have said. Or maybe you're dealing with another person and it just occurs to you, That was kind of an arrogant thing to say. Or maybe you're just going through life and all of a sudden you have this moment, you're like, I'm greedy. That was greed I just saw. Or maybe lust, I've got lust. Or or maybe hypocrisy. One time I was in another city and I was working out at the YMCA. And the YMCA had a jogging path that went around the YMCA and it crossed over the driveway to get into the parking lot. And while I was jogging the jogging path, and I would come around and the cars would just not pay any attention to joggers and just roll right through, I would run up to the car and be like, hey, whoa, whoa, you know? Right away, whoa, you know? Like several times as I ran around. Until I went to leave. When I got in my car and I went to drive out of the parking lot, and suddenly joggers were jogging in front of me, not yielding the right way. I'm hitting my horn like, hey, whoa, big car, little jogger, get out of the way. And all of a sudden, God pinged me. 
you're a hypocrite. <laughs> he was right. But here's what else I heard. I heard, you're a hypocrite, but do not despair. We're going to change that. I was both confronted and comforted in the same moment. And Jesus is saying, blessed are all those who are getting that. Like, are you getting that? Is there an area in your life where you just feel the gravity of grief, a sadness of heart that that's in there? Maybe you have an attitude, a critical attitude. God's like, that's a critical attitude. You're like, oh, it's critical. And God's like, do not despair. We're going to change that. Or maybe a negative attitude. You're like, man, negative attitude. God's like, it's a negative attitude. But do not despair. We're going to change. Maybe it's a habit. God's like, that should not be in your life. I know, but don't despair. We're going to change that. Look at the corresponding promise to this particular beatitude. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Here's the good news. God in his grace, he doesn't lift up the rock of our hearts and show us what's underneath all at once. Because if he did, we would be like Beetlejuice. Bah! We'd run away. God in his grace, he lifts it up and he shows it to us a little bit at a time so that he might empty us out of that a little bit at a time. Why would he be wanting to do this? Because he wants to fill us with his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, and his comfort. Jesus continues along. Look at Beatitude number three, moving right along. Matthew 5, 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Here Jesus is quoting a Bible verse, Psalm 37, 11. Psalm 37 is all about God's blessing on those who belong to him. And notice the word there, meek. Blessed are the meek. Think of it as a title. A meek man. A meek woman. Those aren't titles that our culture says we should be chasing. Not at all. In our culture, meekness is weakness. But in the scriptures, meekness, get this, is a God-controlled person. Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29, Jesus said he was meek. He's the ultimate God-controlled person. And just as the opposite of poor in spirit is proud in spirit, so also the opposite of meekness is willfulness. In the ancient Near East, the Jewish rabbis celebrated learning. The Greeks celebrated the intellect. Romans celebrated power. But Jesus celebrated meekness, a person who is ruled by God from the inside out. So let's just pause for just a second. Like this, we've only gone through a few of these values. Just pause really quick. How countercultural are the kingdom values of God? I mean, our culture says, blessed are the high performers. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Our culture says, blessed are the self-assured. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn over their poverty of spirit. Our culture says, blessed are the powerful. Jesus said, blessed are the meek who are becoming God-controlled people. Why? Why would he say that? Look at verse 5. Look at the promise. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Key word, inherit. What do you got to do to get an inheritance? You don't do anything. An inheritance is a gift gifted to you, not a reward for your performance. And so the God-controlled person, according to Jesus, inherits the earth. Our culture is pushing values on us, more, 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 get more, gain more, and it never gets us more. It always feels like more emptiness. And here Jesus is saying the God-controlled person inherits the earth. You will never lose a thing 
by becoming a God-controlled person who mourns over their spiritual poverty, who lives in a state of, I got nothing but Jesus. So let's go ahead and review these Beatitudes. So according to Jesus, blessed are those who, who recognize that they got nothing but spiritual poverty. Blessed are those who feel the weight of that poverty. And so blessed are those who turn that into just being a God-controlled person. What's going on here? What's going on is God is emptying out the person. He's emptying the self of self so he can fill it with himself. That's what's happening here. And you got to know, Jesus practices what he preaches. In Philippians chapter 2, it describes Jesus choosing to enter into the world and take on, going from heaven to earth to take on a human nature. And it says, in coming into this earth, he emptied himself of the use of his divine attributes. He emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, even unto the death on the cross for us, so that when he rose, God exalted him and gave him the name above every name that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus emptied himself and God lifted him up. He did what we could do, should do. Now listen, God knows that a heart filled with self leaves little room for God. So if you're a note taker, I want you to write this down, okay? Ready? Here we go. God cannot fill what is already full. God cannot fill what is already full. Think about your schedule. God cannot fill what is already full. Think about stuff swimming around your head. God cannot fill what is already full. Think about the things that draw your heart. And so we move to the beatitude that turns it all around. Beatitude number four, Matthew five, and look at verse six. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. I want to hear your voice. For they will be filled. <laughs> filled. He empties us to fill us. Amazing. Notice the word righteousness there. Like in our culture, that word righteous, a non-starter. The only time you hear people talk about righteousness in our culture is when they use it in the compound term. Self-righteousness as a critique against the bad religious behavior so prevalent in the world in which we live. But this word righteous, the root of it occurs seven times on the Sermon on the Mount. And it indicates an inner righteousness, a heart ruled by God that expresses in behaviors that look like righteous behavior. So what's groundbreaking about the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' emphasis on inner righteousness rather than external religiosity. In other words, the righteousness of the kingdom of God flows from an inner change of a heart that has lived under God's rule. So again, let's remember, the first three Beatitudes are about emptying the self of self, poor in spirit, mourning that poverty, meekness, becoming a God-controlled person in order to get to that fourth Beatitude, and that is to hunger and thirst so that you would be filled. So let me ask you, are you being filled with the right good things of God? Pastor John Corson put it this way, and, and it pinged me, so I thought, let's ping you too. Here it is. I am personally convinced that the reason many people are not filled is because they've not been emptied. They are still full of themselves. Pride must go before you find yourself hungering and thirsting for righteousness. God cannot fill what is all 
ready, full. And here in verse 6, Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Let me see your hand if you've ever been so hungry that others can hear your stomach rumble. Anyone? Isn't that embarrassing? I happened to me the other day in a meeting. I was trying to make it stop. It just changed the sound. It's like, I just let it go. How many have ever been so thirsty that your mouth made sticky sounds when you talk? Anybody? Is that gross or what? Every time I hear that, I'm just like, it's just gross. I'm sorry. But here Jesus is talking about spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst. You have spiritual hunger and spiritual thirst. What are you doing with it? Because Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst to be filled with the right things of God because they have allowed him to show their poverty and empty them out. It's a universal fact of every known culture. Every known culture has some form of spiritual hunger for the divine, some form of spiritual thirst for that which is transcendent. Such is true of every known culture. It's true of every human being. I have it, you have it, we all have it. Now follow this for a second. The physical, the, the existence of physical hunger points to the fact that such a thing as physical food actually exists. The existence of physical thirst points to the fact that such a thing as physical drink actually exists. And the existence of spiritual hunger points to the fact that such a thing as spiritual food and drink actually exists. Now, our world is filled, this culture is just filled with empty cups, promising to fill you, but you've got to keep getting more. And the more you drink, the more empty you get. It's almost like seawater. The more you get, the more you... But Jesus said that he is the one in the kingdom. He is the one that your hunger and your thirst can finally meet your satisfaction. Notice the promise, verse 6. Jesus said, they will be filled. Now, grammatically, this promise is in the, in the passive voice. That means that, that the righteousness is not something that the disciples can achieve or accomplish as a result of their effort. It's something that you receive. It's given by God. God is the source. In fact, Leslie Newbigin, my favorite missionary theologian, wrote it this way. He said, man is made for God who is infinite. Therefore, man's desires are infinite, and no finite thing can satisfy them. Unless he finds satisfaction for them in God, he will never be satisfied with created things and will want more and more of them. This is what the values of our culture are all about. Get more, want more, pursue more, go after more and more. And when is enough enough? And the answer is it's never enough until you come to the end and it's too late. Jesus says, I am enough. In fact, again, if you were to look into the world that is your phone, you will see a constant stream of promises of what, what more would look like. You deserve more. Go get more. Chase more. And all you will do is be chasing the carrot, hanging off the stick until you go over the fall. Jesus is the one who meets our need. In fact, here's a Bible verse that you can memorize. John 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger again. And whoever believes in me will never thirst again. He is the one who satisfies our spiritual hunger and thirst. Author Becky Pippert wrote many books on sharing your faith. And 
One time she took a course in graduate psychology at Harvard and while listening to a lecture on psychodynamic psychotherapy of dealing with trauma and hostility in relationships, she had a question. So she raised her hand and she asked the professor. She said, what do you say to the man who asks, how do I forgive my mom? The professor answered, well, I guess the therapist would say, lots of luck. And the students started to clamor. They're all students who want to become therapists. They're in this to help people. Like, what do you mean? Lots of luck. What help can we offer? There's no help we cannot. Like, how can we really help? And the professor concluded. He said, listen, I appreciate your concern, but if you're looking for a changed heart, you're looking in the wrong department. Friends, the kingdom of God is all about changed hearts. The Sermon on the Mount is all about how Jesus changes our hearts. And the Beatitudes are all about how Jesus can change your heart. The question is, is that happening? And I just want to invite you on a little journey as we begin the Sermon on the Mount. Here's the journey. Will you consider reading the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, aloud once a week. It takes 12 minutes to read aloud very slowly, 12 minutes. Will you consider reading the Sermon on the Mount aloud once a week, Monday morning before you head into your week, every week? Why not? If you're married, do it with your spouse. You could take turns. Why not? Why not get on the journey of letting these values of the kingdom soak into your soul? In the same way that Every garden blossoms under the right gardener. The human heart can only blossom under the right ruler. His name is Jesus. And we're on a journey of allowing him to reign and rule over our hearts. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we are so grateful that you are good and you are wise and you are kind and you have a kingdom. And you invite us to not just enter it, but to experience it, to live it out to be blessed, to be transformed. And we just recognize today that your thoughts are so much higher than our own, your ways so much higher than our own. And so often we, we really do get full of our own selfish thoughts, our own selfish ways. And we're so grateful that you sent Jesus to come and to be the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world, to teach us your way, to show us your values, but also to pay for our sins so that in him we would find forgiveness and acceptance and belonging as children in your family forever. And our prayer today is we could begin this journey together that you would open up our hearts to the true king that is your son Jesus under whose hand we desire to blossom and flourish. It's in his name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. Thank you.